Hey, family, this is David Mahan, and uh, there's going to be some sensitive content being shared in this particular podcast, so uh, definitely not appropriate for children. Just wanted to give you that, that heads up. And for me personally, as a children's rights activist, I'm like, you, if you want to accept personal risk, fine. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not able to fully consent because you don't actually know the risk, but it's when you make kids risk for you. That's where I think that's the line for me. That is probably the theme of my entire book and what I know you guys are trying to do is don't make kids sacrifice for adults. It is adults who should be sacrificing for children. In COVID, don't make kids your human shield. I'm sorry, find other ways to protect yourself, right? They are not the ones that you should put in front of you to absorb the full wrath of government shutdowns or whatever it is. Kids don't exist for you, you exist for them. And welcome to The Narrative, where we're unpacking the toughest issues of the day. This is your host, Aaron Baer, president of Center for Christian Virtue, here with my co-host, Dave Mahan, our policy director. Dave, how you doing, man? Doing well. Getting ready to testify. Yeah, we got Big Bill up today that you're testifying on. I've been, uh, you know, it's funny. with the, And again, they, we're, we're, we're slowly... Um, I don't want to say corrupting David, but but uh, <laughs> breaking David down at CCV, bringing him into the public policy world where, you know, the the good bills we have to you know break our backs to get one hearing, and the bad bills just happen to get uh, keep flowing. Yeah, and so um, you know we're, we're uh, pray for David uh, and pray for me that uh, I. I uh, I'm able to say, look, just stay with us a little longer. I promise it's going to get, <laughs> we're going to get good bills through. And, and I love it here. I it's actually, it's, I it's a grind. No, it, is. it is. And and again, it's, it's the reason why this work is so important is because if, if we're not paying attention again, he's, he's testifying against a, an expansion of the medical marijuana program, which would basically, uh, you know, make it, uh, anybody could get a medical marijuana card for any reason, essentially. And, and medical marijuana of, levels of 90% THC where there's no benefit, uh, medicinal benefit of that high levels. Uh, and David's getting ready to testify on that today. And it's one of these things that if, if we weren't raising the red flag on it, it wouldn't be raised. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, but we got a, an incredible, incredible interview, uh, for you here today. Um, we have uh, Katie Faust coming on in a little bit. Uh, Katie Faust runs them before us really her, she wrote a book called them before us and, and, uh, you know, has this organization. It was her uh, work that inspired us to, to do this children first volume that we're doing on the narrative right now of uh, really the framework that she put forward on uh, looking at how society is putting the desires of adults over the needs of kids. Um, and, and she's going to kind of walk through that, that framework that, that she saw. And, and we're going to dive into some really difficult issues, issues like divorce reform, issues like, uh, artificial reproductive technology and IVF, uh, and, and things that a lot of folks, especially Christians today might not have thought a lot about in terms of a biblical perspective on, um, but are, are massive uh, today. And so really excited for you to hear that interview. Uh, but before we get in there, I want to unpack some of the news today and, and, you know the, the the biggest one, the thing that everyone's talking about right now um, is uh, is this Florida bill, this Florida bill to protect children from being exposed, young kids K to three, uh, from being exposed to to sexual education um, uh, at in, in kindergarten through third grade or sexual topics. And I think the Heritage uh, Foundation, Heritage Action, uh, had a good explanation of what this Florida bill is. Uh, it says the bill would prevent school personnel from pushing planned instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity issues in kindergarten through third grade or in contexts that are not age appropriate in later grades. The bill does not prohibit organic conversations between students and teachers, nor does it prohibit age appropriate discussion of social issues, including sexual orientation, if it is in accordance with state standards. Now, you might be hearing this and saying, I don't remember th- hearing anything about this bill. Well, that's because you've probably heard of it in the context of the don't say gay bill um, that it, that the media is running wild with. Um, and that as the, the title of the bill, don't say gay, has nothing to do with the actual bill. Um, I, I, there's a lot I want to unpack on this. Um, the first thing I just want to say just generally, um, and I will say uh, I know this bill is being talked about all over the place just because this is the nature of our work, but... I, something beautiful happened this last uh, these over these last few weeks for me. I got off Twitter for Lent, which for those of you who know me, I, 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 I could see see I, 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 I could see the, the faces. Thank you, thank you. 
Uh, and, and I gotta say, it took me longer than normal to realize all the backlash that was happening over this bill. <laughs> and there was, it was a nice reminder that Twitter is not real life, right? Like you, you get on social media and you get on Facebook and you get on the other and it's like a big explosion and it seems like everyone's talking about it. But if you just turn that stuff, and again, obviously you want to be in the know, you want to, you know, you want to listen to CCV's podcast and, and get our emails and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes there's there's a point where enough is enough, and you don't need to consume everything. Wow, that's, uh, be- that's, beautiful. that's beautiful. I mean, he, next he's going to be fishing with me <laughs> no, and exactly. hunting with no, me no, no, and no, hiking no. the hills. That's of- too much. I'm not I'm not going to go <laughs> hide in the tree stand with David for 48 hours and stare out at bushes. That's, I don't, that's I don't know. Beautiful. But there is a there is a like it's a it was a nice reminder for me uh, that uh, Twitter is not real life. And you can actually live quite a content life without consuming all of the toxicity that's on that website. Uh, that being said, uh, this situation out of Florida um, is one we've seen time and time again where something explodes, the media takes it and and uh, and really distorts it. And I want to talk about that. But before we get into sort of the response to it, I want to actually talk about the purpose of the bill um, and why something like this is necessary, why this is a good bill that they've done here. Because... Um, you know, the, the, the flat out question that this bill asks, you know, when, when, when we're evaluating is, is there an effort to teach about sexual orientation and gender identity to kids? You know, again, think about this as fact, to, as fact from grades f- from ages five to nine. That's what this deals with ages five to nine, maybe 10. Um, you know, I think I think for a lot of folks, they'd say, why would we be talking about sexual orientation and gender identity to five through 10 year olds? Is this really necessary? And Dave, again, as somebody who spent 20 years in public schools who has been diving deeper into these issues of uh, the amount of money and organizations pouring into this, are there organizations and people that want to be teaching this curriculum to kindergartners and first graders, second graders, third graders? Absolutely. Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States, or SECUS, is the largest developer of curriculum and standards on the planet. And uh, if anybody's really interested, just go to um, Google National Sexuality Education Standards, uh, that was produced by a group uh, called Future of Sex Education. And basically, they clearly state that their uh, desire is sex ed for social change, and they want to reach young people as young as kindergarten um, all the way up to 12th grade. So when when you're looking at the, the group that in, in America that is developing the curriculum, that is writing the best practices, the standards for all sexual health, if it's not sexual risk avoidance or abstinence related, it's these guys. And so if you're asking, is this in the classroom, you need not go any further than look at who's writing the best practices and the curriculum. And they clearly say K through 12. So, so again, this is the, and we talked about this a little bit in the last volume. Again, we, we, uh, you've heard us refer back to it and you should, I could, I'd really recommend you go back and listen to the interview we did with Carl Truman. You know, the reality is the, the worldview behind the people that run a lot of public education um, is one that an individual's identity and worth lies in their sexual prowess uh, and their sexual identity. Uh, and so b- you, you can't be fully human in their minds if you have not fully embraced whatever sexual desire you want, whether that's good or bad, you know, whether that's healthy or harmful. Um, and that you are a sexualized being from the point of birth, mm-hmm. right? That 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 you are are, are someone that that has sexual desires that that ought to be explored again. And this is why, again, we we don't. This was one of the big things with with Abergefell. You know, when 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 you take off the the tie of marriage being a, a relationship that procreates, that has the potential at least for procreation, and you make it all around desire. There's there is no way that you can justify keeping the constraints of a, of that marriage or union as two consenting adults. Why not three? Why not children? Why? And all of these things just naturally fall into place. And you see this with these, these folks curriculum with their worldview. Yeah, one of, one of the biggest areas of social change that they say is, is with the um, gender identity, sexual orientation stuff. And, and if you look at who sits on, the, the actual advisory committee for um, the National Sexuality Education Standards, you can see who's there. You've got Planned Parenthood Federation of America, right? Number one producer of comprehensive sex ed in the country. But you also have Gleason, 
right? The Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network. And all throughout these, these boards, um, you see the same bad actors. That's why you need the courage of state legislators, like we're seeing here, um, to stand up and push back against this social change. Um, not just, it's not about, um, you know, STIs anymore and teen pregnancy prevention. Um, it is what they say it is, uh, sex ed for social change. And, and, and again, the, the thing that I think a lot of good Christian folks just don't want to wrap their minds around is how big these organizations are and how much, I, I don't care what school district you're in. You know, Dave has been really big on this uh, since coming in at CCP, which is, you know, who writes the best practices? Every school district will say, every school board will say, mm-hmm. we want to adopt the best practices. It sounds really good. Um, but the question is, who is defining that term best practices? Right. And all of the money, all of the effort that has been poured into this, these massive corporations that say they want to, they define the best practices are these hypersexualized, Planned Parenthood-backed organizations. And so, Again, this is this is again. It goes back to backpack bill for us. This is why we always go back to to we need to free parents to take their kids out because I don't care what district you're in. This has some foothold and grip there. Absolutely, it's it, it is that big, and no matter what we say about it, we have to be honest about it. So that's what this this bill is about: stopping that sexualizations of kids. Grades K to three. That's all it is. There's there's nothing in this bill that says you can't say the word gay. You know, again, I would fundamentally question somebody that would oppose this bill. Why do you want to sexualize K to kindergarten through third graders? What is wrong with you that you would want to do that? Um, but I, I want to unpack a few things on the media backlash on this in particular. And and there's a there's a bunch of different places to go on this, but. I personally lived through one of these scenarios back in 2014 in Arizona when we tried to pass our Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, actually, it was really a technical correction. It was We already had a Religious Freedom Restoration Act on the books. We were just tweaking it. And, you know, the media came out and said, you know, we, I got woken up one morning after we passed the bill out of the, the legislature and sent it up to the governor. I got a call from CNN at 6 a.m. in the morning. And that's not something that happens regularly uh, that said, uh, you know, why are you guys trying to pass a bill uh, to let doctors deny gay people medical services? And I said, what are you talking about? Uh, and that spun off this entire media backlash where they just took a narrative. Mm-hmm. We had Al Jazeera helicopter or NBC helicopters flying over our state house and Al Jazeera calling us and all these, I mean, it was insane. Um, all the, the media that, that they had just decided this was an anti- anti-gay bill. It was going to be used to bully people and all of these lies and distortions going off. We've seen this media playbook now for, for years. You know, they did, they did that to us in Arizona. Then they did it to Mike Pence in Indiana. Then they did it to the North Carolina bill. Um, They've tried to do it in multiple other places. And, and thankfully some lawmakers are starting to get more and more courage. But the reality of this thing is that, uh, there's there's zero accountability in the media anymore on these things. And David, you just had this happen to you on the on House Bill 105, mm-hmm. where uh, the the media was trying to say we were saying these things about uh, abstinence education and and House Bill 105. This was the uh, the bill that the Aaron's Law bill, the sexual violence prevention bill. You've heard us talk about on here before, where they they take one narrative and they just try to get the most yeah. salacious headline they can out of yeah, it. Before before I came to CCV, I would never do interviews that were not live. Yeah, just for that reason. I mean, it, it's the the media is owned by one side. Period. And um, I literally told the interviewer, "Listen, I, I know what the game is. I know the persuasion that you're coming from, the perspective you're coming from." But please don't twist my words. That's all I ask. And she yeah. she completely brought me into her context right. and uh, her narrative. Yeah, and um, and that's you know what we all have to expect. I just I just would pray that we're getting smarter as a society, and and the courage is big as well. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like a lot of these policies we're dealing with um, are, are primarily being driven by one party, right? Mm-hmm. But I think the reason why we're not squashing it is because of lack of courage from another party. Yeah. You know, we're all willing to say we're for or against something in, in um, you know, just in conversation, but will we move the bills? Right. Will we give it a hearing? Um, <laughs> will we co-sponsor? Uh, that's where, where we're seeing a problem with the other side yeah, of it, the aisle. And that, and you know, the, the, 
the reality is with, uh, uh, come on, man, you just drop, drop your phone over clear. here. Just, yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the, the reality is on, on, on where the media is today is, you know, talking about a bill that says, you know, you can't sexualize K through thir- three, third graders. Uh, that doesn't get a lot of clicks. A don't say gay bill that gets a lot of attention that that blows up that plays into their their big Twitter narrative again Twitter's not real life um, and I think what you're going to see in Florida is that this bill is going to become law and and you know a month from now we're not going to be talking about it anymore because uh, because DeSantis is showing that he's not going to back down on this which good for him yeah. um, but the, the this this media backlash narrative is is getting overblown and again this is one of the reasons why. We even call this podcast a narrative is you see these major narratives sweeping all across the country. Right. But what's the truth behind it? You know, what's what's really happening in that case? And politicians will vote based on the narrative versus right. factual information. Yeah, I've, I've seen I've only been around here a couple months and, I, and I've seen it over and over again. Yeah. And, and the other thing I, I just want to point out with this uh, Florida situation, uh, my favorite side of this. And this is why, again, we're going after uh, corporate America with our Christian business partnership at CCB but is the Disney response to this. I don't know if you all have been tracking this, but Disney has since put out a statement opposing um, uh, opposing the, the bill in Florida. Um, what's funny to me about this is, you know, Disney's opposing it. They have some 80,000 employees uh, at Disney World in Florida. So what is Disney really, is Disney going to up and move Disney World to, you know, to put it with Disneyland in California or move it up to Vermont? Um, I, I have a feeling <laughs> probably not. Um, but the other side of this whole coin with Disney is that Disney's out here, you know, talking about how this bill is anti-human rights. You know, it's a it's a civil rights violation to talk to kids about uh, what their gender identity is, which is insane to say. Meanwhile, they're making billions of dollars off of China uh, that is oppressing and murdering Uyghur Muslims. Uh, but Disney says absolutely nothing about those things because there's a lot of money to be made there. Glad to know they set the moral standard for America, though. No, exactly, right? Again, it, you, you just see these, you see corporate America and their massive hypocrisy here where even I bet even too, especially you look at the way these countries make money in places like China or Russia or the Middle East, uh, they sure are talking about LGBT issues over there. Let, let's see Disney's uh, claim how, how you know pro LGBT they are in a, a nation like China or Russia or or the Middle but, East. But real talk, Aaron, I'm not as I'm not as uh, upset with uh, you know the darkness doing what darkness does. Uh, it's the light doing what the light's supposed to do, or not doing what we're not supposed to. Why do we have to support Disney? Yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, you know, we we couldn't afford it when we were you know uh, young parents. But why do we have to support these folks that don't support kingdom? Mm-hmm. Um, that's where, where my issue is. Yeah. Um, courage, backbone. That's where the issues lie with me. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and again, this is, this is the example of uh, being knowledgeable, understanding what's happening around and being able to respond to it. Center for Christian Virtue seeks the good of our neighbors by advocating for public policy that reflects the truth of the gospel. We empower people like you to have a voice in the culture on the most important political and cultural issues of the day. Through our public policy advocacy, grassroots activism, Church Ambassador Network, Ohio Christian Education Network, and Christian Business Partnership, there are countless ways for you to get involved. Join the movement today by visiting ccv.org or by clicking the link in the show notes. That's ccv.org and click join the network. And we've got a very special guest with us here, uh, Katie Faust. Uh, Katie is the founder of Them Before Us, the only organization solely devoted on defending children's rights and family structure. In 2012, Katie began blogging about why marriage is a matter of social justice for kids. Her articles have appeared in USA Today, Public Discourse, LifeSite News, and The Federalist and The Daily Signal. She's filed three amicus briefs supporting children's rights and advocated for the rights of children with lawmakers in the U.S. and abroad, as well as the United Nations. She currently appears in a video series called Dear Katie, which offers advice on how to live sexual and how to live with sexual integrity in the midst of a morally pervasive culture. She is married and the mother of four children and the youngest of whom is adopted from China. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. So good to be with you. Thanks for having me. For sure. And Katie, it's a it's a real pleasure to have you because really your your book and your organization, Them Before Us, uh, w- was really what got us thinking here at CCV. The framework uh, that you lay out there is really what, what got us thinking a lot about the issues that we're dealing with every day at CCV on the policy level with lawmakers. 
uh, and seeing so much about how, uh, again, this this concept of how we are putting the desires of adults over the needs of kids. And that's actually why we we made this whole volume uh, on the narrative, uh, this idea of children's first and why we're, we're working towards launching what we call a children's first caucus uh, at the state house and why we have our children first agenda um, to, to really be injecting. Uh, this concept of let's let's be caring for kids first and foremost, uh, and not have uh, the desires of adults superseding those things. But but Katie, if you can for us, can you walk us through how you came to this this concept, this framework, uh, and really how you see it all playing out in culture and society today? Yeah, that's great. Um, so I was just like ordinary wife and mom like 12 years ago, um, not really, this wasn't on my radar at all. You know, was, my husband's a pastor, so I'm really involved in church. And I, at the time I had three kids, uh, we had just adopted our son. So we were in the process of going through that, um, adopting our fourth child. And, uh, you know, like I was just ordinary girl, but it was when the marriage debate really hit the stage that I was like, what is going on here? Because no longer was the um, discussion about like, I disagree, I think you're wrong. It was, if you don't agree with my political conclusions, you're not just wrong, you're evil, right? And so there was this massive demonization of people who did not follow the political narrative. And what I saw the political narrative saying is kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads. Um, and to me, I, I thought, well, first of all, that's insanity because I've worked with kids for a couple of years. And what you're saying when you say kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads is kids don't care if they have lost their mom or dad. So that political narrative, in essence, said um, a child's mother or father is optional if it forwards my political goals. And to me, with the kids that I've worked with, either in youth ministry or like even in the context of adoption, um, I have found that kids profoundly care whether or not they've lost their mom or dad. And very often if their father or mother is absent, or even if their father or mother is emotionally unavailable, it ends up being one of the most painful things that those kids experience in their life. A lot of times they figure out how to, how to get over it and work through it. Um, but for many of them, it remains a deeply significant lifelong wound. So that was my first wake up call to, I see, you are saying that kids have to sacrifice so that you as an adult can get what you want. And so once I started looking at other family issues, like not just the definition of marriage, but even like how we think about divorce and the kind of narratives that we craft around reproductive technologies, and even the language that we use when it comes to adoption, almost universally is very adult centric and adult desires and adults losses and adults longing and adult sadness drives not just our cultural ideas, but increasingly our policy decisions and our legal judgments. And to me, that is fundamentally flawed that when we get these questions wrong about marriage and family, it is kids who are the victims 100% of the time. So that's kind of my um, zone is marriage and family. Obviously, we have seen this played out for decades in the abortion discussion, right? right? That a child's rights and a child's needs to life are secondary or not even mentioned. And what is primal, like the most important aspect is the woman and how she feels and what she wants. And so... We see this actually manifest in a lot of different conversations that we are having, but the book that I wrote and the kind of area that we try to fill in is the conversation around marriage and family structure, because this is where what I found no other organization was focusing on. So it was, we're trying to kind of fill that vacuum. So can you walk us through what the, as you talk through marriage and family structure today um, and seeing these areas in particular where, where, you know, what kids, what's best for kids has become secondary. What are those areas that you see that happening in, in marriage and family structure? Yes. So the answer is every single area. <laughs> like that's just the bottom line. I don't think that there's any area that is prioritizing the rights of children. So specifically, um, your listeners, thank God, are going to be very familiar with the child's right to life. And there are hundreds of organizations that are fighting for that primary child right. Your listeners may be less familiar with the concept that children have a right to their mother and father. 
but that is also a universally recognized right. Um, listed in the most widely ratified treaty in the world, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, it is also a natural right that you can come to reasoning through with natural law. It is a reality recognized by the five major religions of the world, and it is ratified by common sense. Okay, so this is a right that children have. Okay, now, what are the implications of that? If children have your right to their mother and father, that means that marriage should be promoted, marriage between a mother and father need to be promoted and prioritized because it's the only adult relationship that unites the two people to whom children have a natural right. That means that divorce in terms of no fault divorce needs to be not an option. That divorce needs to happen when it is in the best interest of the child, which is what we used to call at fault divorce, where one spouse was at fault for abuse, adultery, abandonment, addiction, mental health issues, right? And then the courts and all of culture could side with the innocent spouse, the one that was trying to make it work. This has implications when you're talking about same-sex parenting. What is a same-sex headed household? It's a household where a child is always missing either their mother or their father. What does that mean when it comes to sperm and egg donation? Well, that means the commercial and intentional separation of a child from their biological mother or father intentionally every 100% of the time. What does it mean when it comes to surrogacy? Well, that means inflicting a primal wound on a child where you are intentionally separating them from their birth mother, oftentimes with a six-figure price tag on it. What does it mean when it comes to adoption? That means that no adult has a right to adopt. Adoption is not a way for adults to get kids. Children who have lost their parents have a right to be adopted. Adoption is a just society's response to children who have lost their parents. The child is the client in adoption, not the adults. And so we can look at every marriage and family issue and take this template of children have a right to their mother and father, lay it over the top of that marriage and family issue and come out with the right policy conclusions and the right personal decisions. But like I said, and like most of your listeners will observe, that's not happening anywhere. And that is why we need a global movement, a global movement to put children before adults, especially when it comes to marriage and family. But I know that you guys are one of the few that are actually putting their finger on all the other areas where adult <laughs> desires and ideologies are driving the narrative to the exclusion of child's rights and well-being. No, you know, again, I, I think, and we've talked about that a lot on this series, especially in the, you can look at this through the school choice lens. You can look at this through really some of the the, the COVID uh, restrictions and the way we've gone about handling COVID. Again, I, I, I said it throughout the pandemic was this was one of the first times where we, you know, you look at from the beginning, we knew COVID was not uh, particularly dangerous to kids. It was very dangerous to the elderly and people with, with, uh, adults with, with immunocompromised uh, systems. Um, but when you look at our school policies, our school policy was the, the best justifications for school closing was the kids can, uh, well, the kids could get it and it, they might not be at risk, but they could bring it home to their parents or grandparents. And, and that's why we have to close schools. And it's like, okay, so you're, you're putting a child's future at risk for the adult. So let's let's make it clear, we're making kids carry the brunt of the burden. And we're just now starting to get the data uh, on, on how bad the last two years have been educationally for kids that we'll never make up. I mean, there, there's a generation of kids, and I really mean this, especially when you look in the inner cities, that are just gone. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're just, they've just disappeared because of these policies. Um, now, all that being said, though, I want to go back, Katie, because you touched on two issues there in particular, and and uh, we might end up spending the entire time just here because um, th these are two things that the church today uh, just it does not love to talk about. Um, and, and I'll say from a public policy standpoint, we, we've been talking a lot about things like the backpack bill uh, to give every kid a, a scholarship to attend the school of their choice or the SAFE Act mm -hmm. uh, to, to ban hormone therapy on kids. But I will say in the you know near nearly 15 years I've been working on public policy, the two hardest issues to tackle are divorce reform and artificial reproductive technology or IVF or in vitro fertilization. Those those two issues, uh, you lose so many like people just run for the hills on those type two things. And so so we're gonna do like all good folks and we're gonna just dwell on them and make our listeners feel as awkward as possible right now. So let's I, I actually don't want to start with IVF. 
Um, and, and especially, you know, I think for a lot of our Catholic listeners, um, uh, they might have an idea of what the, the Catholic church might say on this issue or those types of things. Um, even though I, I know Catholics who have gone through IVF, um, but especially for evangelicals, there's a lot of folks today that are looking at these issues and, you know, the messaging, you know, this is something Dave's always talking about with the Planned Parenthood side. The messaging is so good. Don't you want to help people start families? And, and isn't that such an encouraging things? I, I mean, I even know pastors who's allowed their wives to be uh, not, not just allowed, but have had celebrated their wives um, being uh, surrogates. Um, talk through with us, the, the the really the the underlying ethical questions behind IVF and surrogacy. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you guys are talking about this. And the thing is that what I have found is um, that most conservatives and Christians don't feel great about this, but they don't know why. Um, that they're like, I, it doesn't sit well with me. But we we love babies, don't we? And we're pro life, aren't we? And we think life is a gift, don't we? So it must be okay. So the good news is that there are child centric answers that are going to validate that queasy feeling that you have inside. Because you're right, that unease that you have, it's there for a reason. And that when we move from begetting children to making children, um, when we take this out of the hands of God and put it into the hands of technicians, um, there are going to be implications for the child. So let's talk just a little bit about what those are. So first of all, let's talk about IVF. So the way that IVF works is you extract sperm from a man, which is fairly easy. Uh, you extract eggs from a woman, which is much more difficult. Um, and it's going to, the woman's going to pay a very high price in terms of her body and her health for all of the stimulation, hormonal stimulation it takes to extract not just that one egg a month, but anywhere from 10 to 20 eggs in one extraction. I mean, you've got to make her body do things that it, it should not be doing if you're going to be able to extract that many eggs. So if you want to take we those- have no data on the long-term effect of stimulating 10 to 15 eggs on a woman at any time. So we, so it's very hard to give women um, full disclosure about those risks when you're not studying the risks systematically. Um, the best place to look for information on that is a documentary called Exploitation by the Center for Bioethics and Culture. Um, they are doing the best work when it comes to the impacts of these technologies on women's health. Um, they did another Excuse one. Excuse me, did, did you say exploitation? Uh, yeah. Oh, I said. Oh no, the, it, okay. Jennifer Law made it. it it's That's amazing. It, we, we're going to make it required watching for CCV because it, it is. We, we this what that came out ten years ago now. It actually won some film awards, but it it is. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, check that out. Yeah. yeah, her films are very good. So this has a major health impact on women, uh, both the surrogates and the egg quote unquote donors or whoever's extracting their own eggs. And for me personally, as a children's rights activist, I'm like, you, if you want to accept personal risk, fine. You know, you're, you're not, you're not able to fully consent because you don't actually know the risks, but it's when you make kids risk for you. That's where I think that's the line for me. That is probably the theme of my entire book. And what I know you guys are trying to do is don't make kids sacrifice for adults. It is adults who should be sacrificing for children. In COVID, don't make kids your human shield. I'm sorry, find other ways to protect yourself, right? They are not the ones that you should put in front of you to absorb the full wrath of government shutdowns or whatever it is. Right. Kids don't exist for you, you exist for them. So when we're talking about IVF, what are we talking about? We are talking IVF, right? In vitro fertilization, we're talking about making babies in laboratories. That is what you're doing, okay? now. When you make those babies in laboratories, typically what you do is you make a lot of them because it's expensive, right? Once you're not making babies the traditional way and you have to employ all of the different costs along with technicians and all of that, you're talking money, money, money. And if you're going to spend so much to create babies in a glass dish, you got to create a lot of them. So you have some leftovers and extras if the first few don't work. And so it's very hard to get hard data on what happens to all of those children, but the best estimate and studies that I've been able to find is to show that about 7% of babies created in laboratories will eventually be born alive. 7%. Do you hear that pro-lifers? Let's talk about what happens to the other 93% of those lab created babies, even lab created babies who are being put together by 
good Christian heterosexual couples. What you're going to find is a lot of those babies will be deemed non-viable and discarded. You can screen them and decide, ooh, this one might have some potential issues. We should discard it. Or some of those babies um, are going to be deemed, well, we've got too many boy babies. You know, we'd rather have, you know, we'll let go of the boy babies instead, right? But there's all kinds of ways to screen those babies, even before they go to the freezer or get transferred to the womb. But the reality is most of them are going to go into a freezer. We are freezing humans, And there's a lot of good Christian, Catholic, conservative couples that have babies on ice right now. We have about 1 million babies in the country that are frozen. And by some estimates, 20 to 40% of them have been abandoned. They can't, we cannot find their parents. We don't know where they are. We have, if you really believe that life begins at conception, we have a massive humanitarian crisis on our hands in fertility clinics all across the globe. And a lot of them are the children, the very real children of Christians and conservatives who completely didn't think that far down the road, desperately wanted a baby, implanted some embryos, now are raising two children that they, that they love and that are gifts to them, who have six full biological siblings in a freezer and that they are paying $1,000 to store every year. And they don't know what to do because what are the other options for those frozen embryos at this point? One, you can donate them to research, which is something that quite a few couples choose to do. Um, Two, you can thaw and discard them, um, which is hard when you're looking at your full biological siblings of those babies playing playing in the backyard, right? And then some of them can be donated to other couples. But what that means is your full biological children are being raised somewhere else by somebody else who somebody will grow up and say, why did you keep them and not me? Now, let's say that they make it out of the freezer and into the womb. Well, sometimes they don't survive the thaw. Sometimes they don't survive the implantation. Sometimes they will survive the implantation. And just for the sake of increasing the odds that you're going to have a successful pregnancy, maybe you transfer three embryos thinking, well, if we get one, that'll be great. But what happens if those three embryos all implant and then what happens if two of them twin and now you've got five babies? Well, that's a really unsafe, risky pregnancy. Any surrogate pregnancy or any IVF pregnancy is actually not necessarily, any any pregnancy with a donated egg because of genetic dissimilarity increases risks for women, okay? So you've got all these kinds of risk factors anyway, but now if you've got multiples, now you're increasing the risk. And so That is why what we call, what the industry calls selective reduction, that is abortion, is standard procedure, especially in surrogacy contracts. Abortion is written into almost every surrogacy contract because in abortion, I'm sorry, in surrogacy, abortion is both quality control. You can abort the babies that have Down syndrome or some other genetic problem, and it's quantity control. If too many implant, then you're able to selectively reduce, that is abort the children. So once you figure out, if you can make it through the IVF lottery, 7% of those babies are going to be alive at the end of this process. IVF is not child friendly. And even the 7% that do make it to birth are now, we are seeing, have some emerging health issues, right? It's very hard to know because it's hard to know how to study children who probably don't know that they should be in that study. But look, when you are making babies in laboratories, you are going to inflict some health cost onto those children for life. So we need to think deeply about this. I don't, and notice, I'm not using any Bible verses for this. We are just talking about science, natural law. And why would we be surprised that we would go so far outside of the natural system that there would not be massive physical and emotional fallouts to the kids? Yeah. And, and I think one of the, the big things about this too, Katie, and, and we saw this front and center, and, and it reminds me so much of, again, the, the transgender issue on this, which is, one of the reasons why it's so difficult to do anything on this issue is the amount of money on the other side of this issue. This is huge, huge business. This is one of the things that comes out in exploitation of the, you know, the, the thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars they'll offer, especially young women at, at Ivy league schools for their eggs or those types of things. I, I, I always, I go back to this a lot when I was in Arizona and we tried to, right after exploitation came out, uh, because there's the, the world egg bank in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, we tried to do a simple reporting bill, just saying, 
listen, we, we want to know how many embryos are created, what's happening to them, uh, how they're being cared for. That's it. We, we That's all we were saying is we just want to know. Yeah, how'd that go? As I said, <laughs> we literally, the, the, the clinics sent letters uh, to, uh, to all of the, uh, the, the families going through their procedures saying, if this bill passes, we are going to have to stop your procedure. So show up and tell we literally that there was that hearing was flooded with, with moms, with strollers saying, you're trying to destroy my family. And we were saying this literally just a reporting bill and, and, and the bill got killed. I, I mean, the, the amount of money and, and uh, pressure on this again, which again, why, why don't you want to be able to say just how many eggs there are and what's happening with them? It, it just raises that question. Did you have well, I, I love your your messaging um, around this whole topic. And, and one of the things you bring up is, is social justice for kids, that marriage is social justice for kids. You use the term that I love to use um, uh, of human shields, you know, putting kids up and, and families up and a lot of the policies that uh, that that they're standing up re- representing are really going to harm the very people who were brought in to speak on them, right? And so, could you speak to um, how in the world is marriage social justice for kids? Yeah, so good. Yeah, there's no other way to look at it. Um, in our book, we've got um, a section in chapter one called um, "Why Republicans Should Care About Children's Rights." Right, children's rights to their mother and father. And um, I won't go into too much detail because your audience probably gets it. But the reality is that um, if you don't have big marriage, you're gonna have big government. You can choose one or the other, right? If you're going to have small government, it requires big marriage. If marriage fails, if children are not being raised by their married mother and father, what we see is we see massive increase in government spending when it comes to anti-poverty programs or when it comes to building more and more prisons or spending more and more on education because these children cannot thrive. They cannot thrive without their, we, we have been studying family structure for decades. We actually know what it takes for kids <laughs> to thrive, to recre- decrease their dependency on government programs. And it's their married mother and father, that intact stable home. But then we also have a section called why Democrats should care about marriage. And we go through all of the major social justice issues that our friends on the left deeply care about and are trying to prevent. And we look at youth homelessness, youth poverty, high school dropouts, high school suicides or teen suicide, teen pregnancy, behavioral issues, high incarceration rates. You can look at every major social issue that we are facing in this country today. And very interestingly, they have something in common. They are all overpopulated with fatherless children. 90% of youth on the street are fatherless. You are four times more likely to live in poverty as a child if you are fatherless. Mm. 63% of teens that commit suicide are fatherless. I mean, 70 to 85% of youth in state-run institutions are fatherless. So there is no social justice unless you can secure individual justice for individual children when it comes to their individual rights to their own mother and father. So nobody gets anything they want. Nobody gets anything that they want until they first secure a child's right to their own mother and father. And historically, the way every society has done that throughout history has been marriage. Yeah, no, that, you know, I, we, we talk about this a lot um, around budget time uh, in the state and, and federally, you know, you, you look at any any state government or or the federal budget budget uh, federal budget you'd actually have a, a fourth leg of this uh, stool but but primarily state budgets it's you do three things we 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 educate uh, we medicate uh, and we incarcerate uh, those those are the three things that we we spend money on the state um, uh, primarily uh, and if you look at the primary drivers of uh, of costs in all three of those areas it's broken families. You know, and, and this this is the thing that I always go round and round with our, our good fiscal friends on our, our fiscal conservative friends. And, and like you said, our, our our liberal friends as well, you know, deregulate. I'm all for deregulation. I'm all for cutting taxes. But on the other side, ultimately, if if you're not dealing with what we're spending money on, 
there's only so much economic stimulus that tax cuts and and deregulation can can actually bring. If you have broken families, if you have kids that are on the fast track to prison, kids that aren't graduating from school, uh, people that need to be dependent upon the government for the health insurance because they don't have jobs, um, you, you're you're going to have a big government. There's no way of getting around that. Uh, and the again th- this. This is the the really obvious thing in front of you is it's family. And, and that's, it's, it's as direct as that. Yeah. And you know, it is family, but it's not family in any form. Yeah. Right. And so that is the challenge. And I understand that now we're in this place where we'd like to say two parent home. I'm sorry. It's not about the two parent home. It's about the married mother and father home. And now we know, I know his heroic step parents who are filling the gap of a negligent biological parent and they deserve our support and our praise and our acknowledgement. But when you're talking about statistical, um, setting children up statistically for success, it's not any two will do. It's not two men. It's not mom and her boyfriend. It is the child's own married mother and father, biological mother and father. And we can talk about adoption because I know all y'all are like, what, what about adoption? We can talk about that. But That's the thing is like when we drift away from this child centric view of marriage, right? Where this is what the child needs. This is not about validating adult emotion. This is not about with whom you share love and connection, right? This is, there's something special. Why is it that all of those risks go down when it comes to father presence? Um, It's because there's something very distinct and unique that those two people, the two people responsible for a child's existence bring to a kid. The first one, there's three. The first one is the greatest likelihood that they're gonna be safe and loved. Statistically, these are the two adults who are the most likely to be protective of, connected to, and invested in kids, okay? Obviously there's exceptions, there's abusive biological parents, they make my blood boil. But any other family arrangement where you are losing one of those parents or including an unrelated adult risks to children only increase. Number two, only those two adults provide something to children that they crave, and that is biological identity, right? Kids long to know, who am I? And knowing from whom you come is a huge part of understanding that identity. Why is it that so many kids are flocking to all of these sexual and gender identities. Well, a lot of them have no other place to ground their identity because a lot of them don't have the stable home and the people from whom they came and the extended kinship network that has helped a lot. Most people throughout humanity answer the question, who am I? Number three, the other reason why this natural right is so powerful is it gives kids the perfect gender balance in the home every time, right? That Moms and dads offer distinct and complementary benefits to children that maximize their child development. And so when you have these two adults committed to one another and the child feasting on mother's and father's love every day of their life, not only are you going to drastically reduce all of those risks of incarceration, poverty, child, you know, high school dropouts, all of that, not only are you going to give them a stable identity or better odds of a stable identity, you're also going to maximize their child development, because that's what moms and dads naturally do working together. So this is kind of the package. You'll never get anything you want without this. Um, And, you know, if we ever want to mend our society and mend the hearts of children, everybody needs to get on the children's rights train. So Katie, how do you, how do you, um, how do you reach the single parents that are listening today? You know, that, might hear that they're broken, that might hear um, their kids' rates of incarceration are higher than other kids. I mean, you've got 74% of African-American kids born in, you know, to homes with no fathers and biological fathers in the home. You're about 54% Hispanics, 25, 6% of, uh, of white kids. Um, so that's a lot. That's a large percent of the population um, are single parents. Uh, many of them have remarried um, and trying to provide a, a father. What do you say to, to those folks that are listening? Yeah. Uh-oh. All the time is the solution for all of this is for adults to do hard things. Okay. Adults need to do hard things. A lot of moms that are single moms are single moms because they were the only parent who was willing to act like an adult. They were the only one that was willing to do the hard things for the sake of their kids. One of the other people 
and I know single dads in this situation too, the other parent was not willing to act like adult, was not willing to do the hard thing. And so sometimes people are single parents because they were the only adult that was willing to do the hard thing, right? And same thing, like just what I said about like heroic single parents, I'm sorry, heroic step parents. A lot of step parents are doing the hard thing by stepping into the role left by a vacant biological parent. So that is the litmus test. The litmus test is, are you sacrificing for children? That's right. Or are you kids sacrifice for you? And that is the problem with many of the cultural ideas and legal ideas that are swimming around our country today is we are valorizing adults who are acting like children. And we are saying your desires are more important than sacrificing for children. And that's exactly backwards. So the whole theme of the book is adults need to do hard things. And there are single parents and there are blended families that are fitting that bill. Yeah, well, and, and, and honestly, Katie, I, I think, and, and you've kind of alluded to this, but I, I think it is worthwhile taking it that step forward because the because this is what we get all the time when we start talking about family structure is, oh, well, are you saying this single mom over here who's breaking her back isn't, um, you know, uh, isn't a good parent? Or are you saying that, you know, they, they should have stayed in an abusive relationship or like, and, and again, this is another quintessential example of we're putting the desires of adults over the needs of kids. So, Feelings. so you, you want us to not talk about what's best for kids, what all the data shows, what, what common sense shows and everything else, because it's going to hurt your feelings. Mm -hmm. So you, you want to put other kids in, in a, a bad situation because it makes you feel embarrassed as a single parent, even though we're, we obviously, you know, and, and, and it's the same type of thing we we're dealing with this on, on backpack bill with, with school choice. Obviously we know there's great public school teachers that are doing amazing things and we celebrate them, but overall systematically it shows the system is broken and That's failing right. and yeah. you don't want to give certain, you don't want to give kids the choice to get a better education because you don't want to hurt this adult's feelings. Yeah, okay. that's exactly right. And that's where just things need to end that we can absolutely acknowledge. Um, and let me just say, most of my friends who are single parents would be like, yep, this is a lot harder. Yep. Yeah. We've got really serious challenges because of this. And you can, you can and should empathize and support that parent. But if you are going to make any progress when it comes to child advocacy, which let me just say, we have, we have abandoned because even people on the right have erred on the side of coddling adult feelings rather than fiercely defending the fundamental rights of children. And let me just say the whole reason why we've seen any gains at all in the fight against abortion is because we have sweetly and generously sought to bear the burdens of women in crisis pregnancies and stood unflinchingly on a child's right to life. Mm -hmm. We need to take that into every conversation about marriage and family. We need to empathize with and bear the burdens of our friends who experience same-sex attraction, who desperately want to be parents and who would be awesome fathers or awesome mothers and say, but none of your desires violate making a child motherless or fatherless. When it comes to people in struggling marriages. Like when I'm not doing children's rights advocacy, I'm often in my husband's office doing marriage counseling with adults who are struggling in marriages. I'm never going to diminish the challenges in, in marriage, like porn addiction, job loss, dealing with childhood baggage, you know, that's resurfacing in marriage. These are very, very real issues that adults face. They deserve our compassion. They deserve our friendship. We need to support them as they work through it. No amount of that kind of emotional struggle within a marriage, and I say emotional struggle because there are reasons to exit a marriage, no amount of that emotional struggle justifies forcing a child to live in split homes, split lives, split worlds that will result in lifelong physical, emotional, and psychological harms to them, right? Every, every adult, this is, going to, this is going to infringe on something that adults want no matter who you are. That's why in our children's rights movement, we say, we insist that all adults, single, married, gay, or straight, conform to the fundamental rights of children. No adult gets a pass. This is going to make demands on all of us at some point, right? All adults are going to have to do hard things for kids. And you are right. We have spent way too much time trying to protect the feelings of adults. And as a result, 
we now have generations of children that are suffering. Yeah. So, so Katie, last two questions for you. One, uh, where are you seeing, again, what I loved about this conversation and the first time I really started digging into what, what you guys are doing at them before us, um, you know, uh, it's one of these. It's one of these frameworks. Uh, it, it's a little bit like Carl Truman's book too, with with how he's he talked about critical theory and Marxism and all these other things as well. But when you start looking at culture through the lens that you lay out and them before us, uh, you see all these pieces clicking together of like, oh, here's the, I, I've seen the common thread between a lot of these things. Where are you seeing hope? Where are you seeing uh, momentum in addressing some of these issues uh, uh, right now uh, in, in the country? Yeah. So. Um, I, I see a lot of hope. I guess that the way that I look at what's going on with our movement is it's kind of like the pro-life world immediately after Roe versus Wade, right? Everybody was like, well, abortion's a done deal, right? This is just how it's going to be. But there was there was a, a little handful of people that are like, nope, it's never going to be. <laughs> we are going to fight for this. doesn't matter. Like culturally what it looks like or legally that it looks like this, you know, this question is has been resolved. This is a fundamental natural right. And that is going to rise to the surface. My good friend, Doug Mainwaring, who's a gay man, supports traditional marriage, incredible children's rights activist. Um, he says, you're never gonna be on the wrong side of history when you're on the right side of natural law. And that is true for a child's right to life. It's also true for a child's right to their mother and father. These truths will come back. Um, and so what I see is the people that hear this they'd never unhear it. Once you can talk to people about children's right to their mother and father, the book is, I mean, we've got hundreds and hundreds of footnotes in terms of research and studies, but also the stories, like 120 plus stories of kids who have lived through these modern families. So you can look at their life and see what is the impact of these damaging ideas like love makes a family, or if I'm happy, the kids will be happy or kids don't care about biology. They just need to be safe and loved. Like what happens when you actually look at what a kid's life is like, if you build your family around those ideas. And the answer is, is often devastation. And so what I have found is when we can get this information into people's minds and hearts, their minds and hearts change. And what I've also seen is when we can get this in front of policymakers, laws change. So just in the last month, we helped defeat a surrogacy bill in South Dakota. Uh, they have been pushing for surrogacy in South Dakota because it's super business friendly and the women there will rent their wombs more cheaply than women in you know, California or New York. And so it's just you know, for the sake of the bottom line, it just makes a lot of sense to pass surrogacy in South Dakota. So we got in there, spent a lot of time with their policymakers to explain why this isn't pro-life, why this violates a child's right to their mother and father, why this violates a child's right to be born free and not bought and sold. We got donor conceived people to testify in front of their committee. Um, I met with legislators individually and the result is they killed the commercial surrogacy bill. Two weeks ago, I just came home from Albania where I spoke at a family Congress. I met with the Albanian president. There had been so much well-moneyed international pressure for this, this, the poorest country in Europe that's 30 years out of communism and still crawling out of that hole. The one thing that Albania has is this love of family. And you had all of these international organizations coming in to really colonize them with this progressive Western view of family and redefine their adoption laws, redefine their marriage laws, strike the words mother or father, mother and father from their government documents. And, and we got in there and equipped them, um, got straight to, you know, wrote a letter to their legislator, testified on in their, well, spoke at their family Congress that was carried live with four major television studios. And just last week, we heard that the activists withdrew all of their attempts to redefine their family code. And so this, this is a natural truth that if you can get into people's hearts and minds, they go, actually, yeah, what the hell? Don't do this to kids. But it's just a matter of us understanding and becoming experts on it. And then being willing to lose some friends to stand up for their rights. Amen. And last but not least, Katie Faust, how can people connect with you at, at them before us, support the work you're doing uh, and, and read more? 
Yeah, we're at thembeforeus.com. So um, that's kind of where we live online. You can get on our mailing list and we'll keep you posted. I think though that the best thing that you can do is become an expert. Um, nobody's going to do this for you. Your politicians don't have the spine for it for the most part. Academia is totally against you. The academy has been captured. Our institutions are corrupt. I mean, I hate to say it, but like- No, that's true. No, there's- that's, yeah. that's, In terms of- get used to speaking bluntly. That's the other side of this. Yeah. That's the, yeah. Right. Um, there's nobody that is going to fight for kids except you, ordinary Ohio mom who's sitting to listening to this podcast, doing her laundry. It's you like and it's me. And and I was like talking with another group last week. And one of the professors said, where did you go to grad school? Like, what are your credentials? And I'm like, I've got none, lady. Do you understand me? I've got no credentials. It's just that only ordinary people are going to be able to fight this fight. But if you have truth on your side, if you're armed with the stories of real life kids, you're going to win because this is a truth that will never stay hidden. Um, and what we need is not people with degrees. We need people with courage. So what we've tried to do in the book is make you experts. Every marriage and family issue, we have called the very, very best of the social sciences. You can bank on every footnote that is in this book. We are going to bring you into contact with the real stories of kids who have been impacted. So you're not fighting against adults or, or, or you're not against people with infertility. You are for children. And this is what we all need to be. We need to be for children. And so that's what we seek to do is equip you to be for children. That's great. Well, Katie Faust from Then Before Us, thenbeforeus.com. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Narrative and this volume on Children First. Uh, we'll be back here next time. Thanks to producer Vince from Western Media. Thanks to our communications coordinator, Claire Dyson, for getting Katie booked here for us. Uh, and we'll catch you on the next week's episode. Mm-hmm.